A very good Sunday morning to each and every one of you, and I thank you for tuning in here on the website of Northfield Boulevard Church of Christ, www.godsredeem.org. We are studying uh, this morning in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. The letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians uh, has been our focus this quarter. And I hope that you've enjoyed it so far. This is our next to the last lesson. We're in chapter 15, as I said. If God gives us the day next Sunday, we'll be looking at chapter 16, closing out the letter, and looking at some of the things that Paul uh, said in closing to the Corinthians. And we'll also have a review of this quarter. So I hope you'll tune in. Also, while you're here on the website, uh, please look at the COVID vi uh, guidelines that the elders have established with us uh, for uh, worshiping with us inside the building and worshiping in the parking lot. You're more than welcome, and we cordially invite you to come and visit us at 2091 Pitts Lane here in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Join us on uh, Sundays and pretty soon on Sunday evenings for our uh, first day of the week worship, our observance of, and fellowship uh, around the Lord's table, and also on Wednesday evening for our midweek Bible study. We encourage you to take advantage of those and come join us. We'd love to see you. We'd love to worship with you, and we'd love for you to consider being a part of us. We are uh, in uh, lesson 13 today. Uh, looking at the resurrection, we won't have a review today as we have in other uh, lessons because next week we'll have a general re review of the epistle. And we've got a lot to cover today, so if you'll excuse me today, uh, we're going to get right into the lesson. We've got a lot to discuss, and Paul has a lot to mention uh, to the Corinthians about uh, this uh, idea that they had wrongly gotten about the uh, resurrection. When we look at what was going on with them, we had mentioned this initially back when we first began our study, when we mentioned the Gnostics. Uh, we also mentioned the Docetans, which was an offspring of these, and there were several uh, offshoots of Gnosticism, but it goes back to this Greek philosophy. Uh, that the body was inherent evil, and the only way to get rid of the body and achieve immortality was through death, uh, and then the soul would become immortal. Uh, they believed that the body was unnecessary, unwanted, and would finally be destroyed. Uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses hold uh, to this fact. Other cults and uh, even some uh, denominations have this idea, but this idea that they had gained that spiritual life would rid them of this body. You remember one of the things that we noted was that in this Gnostic thinking, uh, they held the belief that whatever the body did, uh, the, the mind had no control over that, and so what the body did in the flesh uh, was evil, but it had no effect on uh, the spirit. And these things had allowed them to go back into fornication and adultery and incest and in, uh, selfishness and all sorts of things that uh, they blamed on their fleshly body, uh, being evil matter. Uh, 
being uh, that which was uh, something they couldn't help. Uh, you remember when Paul talked about the resurrection, it was a sore point with the Athenians back in Acts 17 and verse 32. Uh, they listened to Paul. The Athenians listened to what he preached until he got down to the resurrection. And then in verse 32, it says that some of them began to mock him. Well, we understand that what Paul was refuting here uh, enables us better to understand why he was teaching the bodily resurrection. Uh, resurrection. Some, th uh, some of these Corinthians were still clinging uh, to this pagan belief that uh, they had of the body and of the afterlife. And so what Paul uh, does in this chapter as men break it up is he discusses five things. The first is he discusses it uh, the resurrection, that is, of Christ as a historical fact, and it was recent history. Uh, Paul had talked to them in this year and a half that he spent with them, uh, preaching to them, studying with them, encouraging them, and they had accepted some of these things, but now they were straying away. Uh, the second thing he's going to talk to them about is that the resurrection of Christ is related to the general resurrection of the dead. Uh, he's going to answer some of their objections that they have to this sort of thing. He's going to talk to them. He's going to use uh, one of their own bits of ammunition, logic. You remember the enlightened Greek philosophy uh, held up logic as being uh, that which can prove uh, philosophy, that which can prove uh, nature, and certainly uh, in some cases it can, and Paul's going to show how it can, but they had used it wrongly rather than going to the scripture, rather than reaching back into what they had learned, uh, they were simply hanging on to logic. The fourth thing is uh, he's going to talk about the translation of the living, that is those who are alive at the time Christ returns, what's going to happen. Uh, what kind of bodies are they going to have? How is this going to be accomplished? And then fifthly, he's going to offer in verse 58 some concluding words of triumph that Christians have in the resurrection of Christ. And so with that understood, those things are, are that we're going to talk about, let's look at uh, the resurrection of Christ as a historical fact in the first uh, 11 verses of chapter 15. He talks to them about what he has already uh, preached to them. Uh, he reminds them that when he taught them the gospel, that the resurrection was part and parcel of the message, and it still is today. It is the cornerstone uh, of Christianity. And he's going to use logic to uh, talk about that a little later on. But just as by way of introduction, uh, Paul preached that uh, the gospel included the resurrection of the dead. What he preached, they'd received in verse 1. And if they'd continue to stand in it, they'd be saved. But they were drifting away. And he delivers these fundamental uh, historical facts as the core of the gospel. You remember back in Acts 8 when Philip taught uh, the Ethiopian eunuch 
and it says that he preached unto him Christ. Well, what does that mean? Well, we can infer from that lesson that it includes baptism. And if it includes baptism by necessity, it includes the death of Jesus Christ, his burial in the earth, and his resurrection on the third day. It must. He died for our sins, and the, the Old Testament prophesied that. They pointed to Christ, passages such as Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. Christ was buried. He was indeed taken off the cross, dead, the scriptures say, already dead, died quickly. But he was buried. He was buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. He was buried there for three days. He stayed in the earth and then rose on the first day of the week. Jesus used the idea from uh, the Old Testament about Jonah. You remember Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and nights, and therefore he was going to be in the earth for the same period of time, Matthew 12, verses 39 and 40. Other passages of the Old Testament foretold the resurrection. Psalm 16, and again, uh, Isaiah 53 also talks about his resurrection. And so, as Paul is preaching this, he's reminding them of what they had already been taught. They had heard the gospel in its entirety. He had told them that in just a few chapters back. Uh, but now they were on this uh, kind of going back to the Greek uh, thinking, the fleshly thinking, the carnal thinking. And so he's going to remind them of a second thing that assures the resurrection. There were witnesses, eyewitnesses of the resurrection. Well, Jesus was on the earth for 40 days, the scripture says, following his resurrection. He uh, was seen by many, not just a few, but he was seen by many people, not just his apostles either. And so Paul mentioned some of these uh, people who saw Jesus, who touched Jesus, who put their fingers into his side and his hands. Uh, the first one was Peter uh, here in verse 5. Look back at Luke 24 and verse 34. Uh, to the twelve. The 12 is used uh, here as a title for the disciples, and certainly uh, it's used as the 12 even when Jesus was, or Judas was no longer with them uh, when he went out and hung himself on the night that he betrayed Christ. Uh, sometimes it's mentioned when there are less than 12 uh, present. Uh, you remember at one of these appearances, Thomas was absent back in John 20. He was seen by over 500 brethren at one time, chapter 15 and verse 6. And Paul says he appeared to James, the Lord's brother, to all the apostles when he ascended into heaven, perhaps. And last of all, Paul appeared to Paul. And I might add, there's another one as well, when uh, Christ had appeared to John, but this wasn't written at this time. Uh, so the last one of all that Paul mentions is he appeared to him. And the fact that Paul was the last one to see Jesus and being a witness of Jesus uh, having been resurrected 
was a condition for being an apostle. He couldn't be an apostle without having done that. Where's that requirement mentioned? Back in Acts 1 and verse 22. And so therefore, there are no living apostles. People may call themselves apostles, and we see false teachers calling themselves apostles, but there are no living apostles. His call to be an apostle wasn't in the usual manner, was it? You remember back reading uh, about Saul's conversion on the road to Damascus back in Acts uh, chapter 9? Uh, he was called in an unusual way because he prosecuted Christians. Who would think he would ever be uh, an apostle? And even Paul found it astounding. In verse 9, he says, I'm the least of the apostles, and I'm not suitable to be called an apostle. And he's thinking about his time as one who rebelled against Christ, as one who went, uh, went against him in his uh word but he was joyful now because he understood he was an apostle and a servant of god by the a servant of jesus by the grace of god and because of this he worked more abundantly he'd referred to this before a few chapters back talking about uh, the gifts that should have been given unto him for his labor there his support but he chose not to take it uh, he simply was overjoyed to be with them and to teach them and to work with them and ensure that they continued to be children of God. And so he worked with them more abundantly and he uh, wanted them to accomplish great things because the grace of God was with him. He wanted the grace of God to be with others. So Paul says this is the gospel which he and other apostles preached and what the Corinthians had believed, the resurrection being fundamentally the gospel, and it wasn't something that was added at a later date. It was not some new revelation. It was not something they had not ever heard of, but they needed to be reminded of it. The second thing that Paul uh, writes about is the resurrection of Christ as it's related to the general resurrection of the dead. There is going to be a resurrection of the dead on that day when God uh, sends Christ here for a second time to, in the skies, receive us in a cloud and be taken home. And so he says in verse 12, he ties this into the general resurrection. He says, now if Christ be preached, that he rose from the dead, how say some of you, uh, some among you rather, that there's no resurrection of the dead? How can you say that? If we're preaching that Christ rose from the dead, why do you think you won't uh, be raised from the dead? And if there's no resurrection of the dead, uh, Paul says, then Christ was not raised. If there's no resurrection of the dead, if death is simply a separation of the body from the soul, uh, the body uh, perishes, uh, which it does, and goes back to dust. But if whatever you did in the body is not going to be held accountable, and there's no resurrection uh, to change our bodies, uh, and you don't believe that Christ was raised that way, then you're very mistaken. And so he gets into this argument that I talked about 
this argument of logic, Paul begins to uh, go back to what they believe in their Greek philosophy about logic. And that's uh, taking evidences and putting them together and coming to a conclusion that is based on uh, a natural course uh, from the evidence. And so he uh, concludes that if Christ is not raised from the dead, then we have a problem. He says in verse 14, the first problem we have is that our preaching is vain. Paul is out being persecuted. He's going to be imprisoned. He's going to, he's been beaten. He's fallen among uh, thieves. Uh, he's suffering so much for the spread of the gospel. If Jesus didn't die, if Jesus wasn't buried, but if he did not rise from the dead. And you remember, that's a story that the Jews spread, that the Jewish leaders spread, that Christ didn't rise from the dead, his body was stolen. Well, if that's true, uh, then it's all vain. It's without basis. It's without truth. If Paul is preaching that Jesus rose from the dead and he didn't, uh, then he's under a delusion. He's preaching from a delusion. Would you listen to a crazy man? Would you believe that he was speaking the truth? Well, he also says, uh, your faith is also in vain. That is, uh, Christian faith rests on a delusion rather than a historical fact. So, uh, you say you have faith, you believe in Jesus Christ. Why do you believe in Jesus Christ if he's not who he said he was? And he didn't do what he said he would do. If he didn't uh, arise bodily from the grave, then you have nothing to believe in. There's no truth to, to base your faith on. Thirdly, he says in verse 15, uh, that the apostles who are also preaching elsewhere and uh, spreading the gospel along with other preachers, they're false witnesses of God, he says in verse 15. It was the apostles who gave eyewitness testimony that Jesus was raised from the dead. Some went to the uh, tomb early in the morning. Uh, the women who were sent by the angels to go tell uh, the apostles and the others, that he is risen. And Jesus appeared to them in various ways, on the road to Emmaus, uh, inside where they, where they were gathered, again on another occasion when Thomas was there. He wasn't there on the first time. But if none of this happened, then these are just liars. We've been talking about false teachers uh, in our studies on Facebook. Uh, they're just another one of those. They have no idea what they're talking about. Fourthly, he says, if the dead aren't, right, aren't raised, uh, then Christ was not raised, verse 16. And here's what ties it into the general resurrection. If Jesus didn't die, what reason do we have that we will be resurrected? If there's no general resurrection, then certainly this uh, specific case didn't happen. Fifthly, he says, if Jesus Christ did not rise from the grave, verse 17, your faith is vain. The word vain here means void of result. If Christ is not raised from the dead, uh, 
there's no objective result such as the desire to have our sins forgiven, to have the blessings of God because Jesus Christ was not who he said he was. He was not the son of God. The sixth thing he says in verse 18 is that you're still in your sins. Jesus made this perfect sacrifice that no one else could do because of man's weakness. Man couldn't do it. The angels couldn't do it. It had to be the son of Jesus, Jesus Christ. Revelation 5 gives a good picture of that. And he died to do what the law couldn't do. And that is in his name and as his children, in Christ, we have forgiveness of sins. And what the resurrection did was absolutely uh, demonstrate that Christ, by God, had power and victory over sin and death. If he wasn't uh, raised, then there's no victory over sin. There's no victory over death. And we're still going to die eternally spirit and body, and our sins are going to be with us. Point number seven Paul makes in verse 19, those who have fallen asleep, those who die, if there's no resurrection, <coughs> excuse me, then they've just died. They perished. This word perish refers to eternal damnation. If Christ wasn't raised from the dead, Paul says, and one is yet in his sins, then you have no expectation of heaven. Uh, you're going to be separated from God and eternally lost in hell. That's that's just the logical thing. And again, appealing to logic. Number eight, those who believe in Christ, if he did not die, if he was not buried, if he did not rise in the resurrection from the grave, and those who believe that, and those who believe Jesus Christ are to be the most pitied, he says in verse 20. Pitied. Indeed, if Christ is not who he said he was, and Christ is not, uh, did not do what he said he was going to do, and give us forgiveness of sins, there is none, and we are to be pitied because our hope is futile. It's worthless. Remember all the things that Paul suffered because of his faith in Christ. Why would he do that if he was not a witness of the resurrected Christ? Someone who uh, just loves to be beat about the head and shoulders and uh, imprisoned and all sorts of horrible things happen to him, certainly they're to be pitied. Well, he says Christ is the guarantee of our own res resurrection. Christ was the first uh first fruits and we'll talk about that in a bit but he's the guarantee of our own resurrection there from verse 20 through 22 he talks about christ being the first fruits of the resurrection of the dead and when we look at this word or this idea of first fruits we go back to the old testament and during harvest time when the fruits were harvested uh the first fruits that were gathered the good ones were sacrificed to God as a guarantee that uh, the rest of the fruit would follow and they would have a good crop that was sacrificed uh, in order to please God. 
Jesus' resurrection pleased God. Jesus' work on earth pleased God. He was uh, the first fruits for man. He's the first to be raised from the dead with a glorious body and a guarantee that the rest will follow. We entered uh, this world of sin by Adam, a man. And with the resurrection of a man, Jesus Christ, uh, came life and life eternal. When we look at Adam and what he brought to us, uh, he brought death. We're going to die. And in Christ, all men are made alive. We're raised from the dead, Paul says. The third thing he wants them to know is that Christ is going to reign until death is destroyed at his second coming. Verses 23 through 28. Christ has been given all power and authority. And it's going to be given back to the Father along with the church. And the events that are going to uh, take place uh, during the resurrection of the dead is a pretty orderly event that Paul describes. Uh, they demonstrate that indeed this is the uh, part of uh, God's predestined plan for man through Jesus Christ. It is every bit a part of the plan of salvation of the gospel of what Paul and others have been preaching. Christ is the first fruits. The rest of the fruits are going to come at the second coming of Christ, verse 23. And he goes on to describe this order uh, of events when Christ comes again. First of all, when Christ comes again, he's going to deliver up the kingdom to the Father, verse 24. And it's not going to happen until Christ has put every enemy in subjection to himself. That last enemy being death. Secondly, the dead are going to be raised in order that death may be destroyed. Once all men uh, are raised, uh, death is going to be destroyed. Eternal life begins, either in heaven or in hell. The third thing that's going to happen following this resurrection is that Christ is going to deliver up his subjects, his church his holy ones. Uh, he's going to deliver them to the Father and end his reign, verses 27 and 28. During this present rule, during the time that we're observing now, the Father has given him all power and all authority, and he's going to rule. You remember uh, that Jesus sat down at the right hand of God he assumes this position of our king, uh, and he's going to rule until death is destroyed, and at that time, he's going to give all things back to the Father. What a wonderful thought that our Lord has not forgotten us. Our God has not forgotten his plan, nor altered his plan, but makes it free to all who believe. And in order to inherit those things, we must understand logically that Jesus is who he said he was. The evidence is there. The proof is there. And if we deny that, if we deny the resurrection, it's going to lead us not to live good lives. Uh, I call it loose living. You know, verse 29 through 34. 
uh, it's a living that is not tightly controlled. It's not disciplined and it becomes loose. It becomes, uh, even though we may say we believe, uh, it's not shown in our doing and in our behaving. So in verse 29, Paul begins this section of denying the resurrection being connected to this way of living. He, he asks several uh, rhetorical questions. The first question asks about being baptized for the dead. The Mormons do that, and uh, there may be others uh, who baptize for the dead. Uh, some people say uh, that Paul was expecting Jesus to come in his time. But I don't think that's the case. Uh, we all preach to be prepared for Jesus' coming. We all talk about Jesus coming this second and final time. Uh, it is what we must do. We must warn one another. We must warn the world that the time is coming when Jesus will come to take those who love him home. But for those who are uh, unbelieving, for those who are not obedient, for those who are disloyal, there's also coming a resurrection into uh, eternal death, eternal separation from God. Paul's doing what every preacher uh, does when he preaches the gospel. It's part of the gospel. Uh, we must preach about Christ coming again. Otherwise, why would we need to live uh, as we live? That's another part of uh, Higdon logic, maybe. Uh, the thought of this question is, were you baptized to stay in the realm of the dead? They had been baptized out of obedience to the gospel. Now, you're, you're going back to this belief uh, that you had before that it's the body is the problem and yes it is a big problem uh, but it does have an effect on your spirit it does have an effect on your soul every man was baptized because of his hope uh, that we can and we will be resurrected into eternal life the second question Paul asked is why should he and others go through the persecutions that they've endured if there's no resurrection, which we looked at before. And he specifically mentions these threats against his life in verse 31. He says, I die daily. There are those who don't like Paul. He preaches the truth. He corrects false doctrine. He administers uh, discipline uh, against those uh, who have uh, erred and are leading uh, the church away in the sense that he preaches their error and urges uh, the churches uh, to take discipline. Uh, he also mentions his fighting the wild beasts at Ephesus in uh, verse 32. Uh, you can go back to 2 Corinthians 1 verses 8 and 9 and 2 Timothy 4 and verse 17. All of these things that were life-threatening Paul had endured. Why would he do that if Christ did not, uh, was not raised from the grave, was not raised from life? If there's nothing but this life, Paul says, then we just need to live this uh, 60s hippies life of uh, eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die in verse 32. Uh, it's just a lifestyle where we should do anything because Jesus Christ, if he did not rise from the dead, is not who he said he is. He is not the cornerstone 
of the foundation of his church. He is not the son of God. And so we might as well uh, do what they wanted to do. And in, in some cases, many of the brethren uh, at the church of Corinth were uh, eating and drinking and living like there was no tomorrow. Because the conclusion uh, which the denial of the resurrection leads uh, is that people can influence you. You can uh, be influenced by those whom you associate who are teaching these sorts of things. And he says, don't be deceived. Evil communications or evil companions, your uh, translation may have, corrupt good manners. If we do like that young man in Psalms 1 and we begin to stand on the street corner and associate with people until finally we just sit down and we're one of them, uh, we can be just like the Corinthians as well because that's what they had uh, done. And you look back at what we've studied as to how many things went wrong and why did they go wrong because they associated with old friends and they associated with old things. Uh, and they went to old places, and they were reminded not of what they'd learned from Paul, but they were reminded of what they learned uh, from their earthly friends who taught them these earthly doctrines and swayed them away from what was true. And so Paul says, uh, don't be deceived. If you continue to hang around, if you continue to... Uh, try to be in the world and try to be uh, in Jesus, it's not going to work. And so he tells them they need to wake up to righteousness and recognize that some teachers don't have the knowledge of God, in verse 34. Going back to one of the very first things we talked about, these teachers. You know, you're listening to people uh, speak with great oratory and use wonderful words, but you're not listening to what they're telling you. And you're not checking it with the scripture to make sure that that is in fact true. And so that's the same thing that we need to do. And we need to understand there is a resurrection of the dead. It's going to take place. And we are going to be resurrected. Now, Paul's going to talk about some of these objections that they had in verse 35 through 49. And he's going to address two questions that they may have asked in this letter. How are the dead raised and with what body do they come? And I, I get asked that question a lot. Uh, what kind of body are we going to have? What sort of body is this incorruptible body? Well, I don't know. I have no idea. You know, I'm still uh, having problems thinking carnally. Uh, but to even imagine what uh, the spirit world is like. Uh, it doesn't begin to make an, Im, uh, an image or an Im impression upon my mind uh, enough to tell you what I think it'll look like. Well, let's look at this first question that Paul asks. He says, how are the dead raised? Uh, there in verse 36 and 37. And let's, let's uh, begin there in verse 36. He compares it to planting a seed. And we've planted a lot of seeds around the house this, this year. God's been good to us. The ground's been good to us. We've had a lot of uh, vegetables and uh, fruits. And uh, it's good uh, to plant seeds and watch them grow. Children uh, start out doing that when they're young in school. But he's talking about this 
idea that when you plant a seed, uh, a lot of things have to take place. You plant the seed, and then it has to have nutrients, it has to have warmth, it has to have water, <clears throat> and it's not going to be a plant until it's planted and it germinates. Well, there's a connection uh, between this seed that's planted and the new plant that grows, uh, even though they're so different in appearance. You know, what comes out of a seed bears no resemblance to uh, what, what it looked like when you first planted it. So when that body is given to us, and Jesus said for those who are still living, it's going to be in a flash. But this body that we're going to be given, that's incorruptible, uh, which has the glory of our Jesus and our Father. Uh, what kind of body is it? Well, he says uh, in verse 38 through 49, uh, this appearance is going to be different. It's going to be certainly different than the fleshly body. God uh, has in his mind uh, the body that we should have, and he is going to give it to us uh, to fit the environment. Now, let me say that again. He's going to uh, design whatever body that is incorruptible when we are resurrected to fit the environment. And he says there's a unique body for different kinds of flesh. Men have a certain kind of body, beasts fish, birds, the stars, the planets, the sun, the moon, <clears throat> the terrestrial bodies. And they're all different in glory. You know, some stars are just bright and brilliant, and certainly the moon dominates the sky at night. And you look at the planets, and you look at how different they are, and, and you see the pictures, and I, I'm in awe of the things that a man has taken pictures of out in space of planets and asteroids and galaxies and things, and uh, they just stop my heart almost at their, their beauty. God ordered all of those things and put them in order and knows all their names. But they're all different in, in their glory as to how they appear and how they shine. Well, that's going to be the same uh, when the dead are resurrected in verse 42. God is going to design a body that's fitted for the eternal home. Heaven. Well, what is heaven like? I don't know. Well, haven't you read Revelation? Yes, I've read Revelation. And Revelation is simply a poetic description of the beauty and the perfection uh, of, of heaven. There's no physical image. But our bodies are going to conform so uh, we can live there so that we can spend eternity there. And so he gives a series of contrasts here now uh, between the dead physical body and the resurrected spiritual body. The physical body is sown in corruption. We get sick. We cut ourselves and we bleed. We bump our heads and we get bruises. Uh, we're susceptible to viruses. We're susceptible to many things. It's sown in corruption. We do things that are earthly. We do things that are not good. Uh, our minds are often on things they shouldn't be. And the physical body, Paul says, is sown in dishonor. There's nothing honorable about a rotting dead body. 
but the spiritual body is going to be raised in, in the glory, he says. The physical body is sown in weakness. I get tired. When I cut the yard, I'm tired. When I'm sick, I don't feel good. When I've had bad things happen, sometimes I don't feel like talking or I don't feel uh, like listening or I don't feel like visiting. Well, the spiritual body is going to be raised in power. It's not going to have any of those things. Do you see the descriptions, uh, the contrast that he's drawing between the resurrected body and the bodies we have now? I don't know what it looks like, but I can't wait to be in it. The physical body is a natural body. It's what God gave us uh, to live in this environment. We sweat when we get hot and we cool off. We have different colors of skin uh, for various reasons. We have various strengths and weaknesses. We have this natural body that God created. And the resurrected body is a spiritual body which God created. And they're both created for the environment that uh, we live in now and the environment of heaven that we look forward to later on. These bodies bear the physical image of, of Adam. And because of Adam, we have a living soul. Uh, in Hebrew, that word living soul or that phrase uh, simply refers to the uh, physical life. Uh, we have a soul referring to the man in Genesis 1. And the last Adam, which is Jesus Christ, is a quickening spirit. He communicates to us in this glorious resurrected body. He's our king at the right hand of God. And so that which comes first, <coughs> Paul says, is this natural body, which we have. And then comes the spiritual body in verse 46. Just as certainly as there's one, Paul says, there's going to be the other. Then he talks about the translation of the living. Those who are living when Christ returns uh, to take his uh, faithful and obedient brothers home uh, and present them to God. Flesh and blood can't enter the kingdom of God. That means that a change has to occur. We can't be in heaven in the bodies that we have. No man has seen God and lived, the scriptures say. And I think back at all of the appearances of those who've been in the presence of God, certainly angels who have come from the presence of God uh, to bring messages to man to Abraham, to uh, Jacob, to uh, others of the Old Testament, and certainly those who sat on the tomb uh, to tell the women that he is risen, and in turn telling the world he is risen. 
brilliant. And certainly of note in my mind is always Moses. When he came down off that mountain after seeing the glory of God, being <clears throat> in his presence, Moses had to put a veil over or a covering over his face because it was brilliant, it was white as snow. He had been in the presence of God. So flesh and blood, and Moses just saw the passing glory of God. He didn't see God. But bodies such as this fit for earth <coughs> are not fit for heaven. And so this flesh and blood has to change. It has to uh, occur in the body before we can participate by any stretch of the imagination and all of those wonderful things that God has prepared for those who love him. And Paul continues to explain what's going to happen when uh, Christ returns. Not all the dead uh, are going to, uh, excuse me, not uh, everyone on the earth is going to be dead. Well, that should tell us uh, when Christ is coming. No, we don't know any more by that uh, than we did before. Only God knows, and he's not giving any hints. We just Paul is just saying in verse 51 that there are going to be those who are alive when Christ comes. But listen to what's going to happen. Those are going to be changed in an instant. They're going to be changed in a moment, quickly. The last trumpet's going to sound, the dead in Christ will rise, and the living shall be transformed. The body is going to be changed from physical, suitable for earth. And the earth is going to pass away. And the body is going to be changed into a physical world, or into a spiritual uh, body, to live in a spiritual world, either heaven or hell. And so the body of the living is going to be changed from a physical to a spiritual body, just like the resurrected dead will have. There's going to be no difference. Both bodies are going to be eternal. One is going to enjoy the beauties. and, and Well, I don't even know a human word that could describe the joy of heaven. It's going to be suitable to enjoy those things. But unfortunately, the spiritual body of those resurrected uh, for an eternity of separation from God are going to be suitable. They are going to be made for the environment of hell, of torment, separation, and fear, terror, rather. So when this occurs, then death, the last enemy of Christ, is going to be defeated. And he says, death is swallowed up in victory. It's no more. Paul quotes this from Isaiah 25 and verse 8. He says, there's going to be no more sting of death, no more sorrow, no more crying. And, and uh, I hear people saying, you know, there's just been too many uh, deaths with uh, COVID-19. There have been too many deaths with cancer. There have been too many deaths with Alzheimer's. Yes, there have been too many deaths, we might say, but we all must die. Life is uncertain. Life is short. That's the nature of the consequences of Adam's sin in the garden. And so here on this judgment day, 
this day of judgment and torment for those who uh, know not God, nor his son, nor believe, nor obey. But it's going to be a day of judgment and absolute sheer joy for those who do love him, for those who do believe him and know that indeed he is Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, that he is Jesus Christ, Savior, King, and he's ours and we love him. Be no more sting of death because sin's been defeated by the blood of Christ. For heaven, no sin, no one who engaged in sin, no one who continued in sin, no one who failed to believe, uh, to repent, to confess Jesus, and to be baptized into his death, resurrected as a new creature, and live their life as God would have them, wearing Christ as something not to be spotted, wearing Christ as a light, as a beacon to those in darkness. That's going to be the joy, and both bodies incorruptible, both bodies resurrected, are going to be suitable for their environments. And so, Paul, uh, you can almost hear his urging passionately to the Corinthians to not be swayed by earthly teaching, earthly philosophy, those things which man builds up to be something of wisdom uh, that God makes foolish. And his concluding words of triumph, I think, in verse 58, uh, sum it up for us. In order for us to enjoy that resurrected body, suitable for heaven, suitable for praising God, for enjoying the treasures that we've laid up in heaven, he says we need to be steadfast. That word's a military term, stand fast. Uh, it means don't move and don't let anyone move you. You are to stand fast in what? Stand fast in the truth. Stand fast in the work. Stand fast in benevolence. Stand fast in compassion. Stand fast in mercy. All the things that Christ depicted in his example to us, his perfect example. We need to be steadfast in that. And we need to be unmovable, not changing with every whim that the world may throw at us. Every so-called new revelation or uh, newly discovered uh, writing or any philosophy. But he says we also need to be abounding in the work. We need to be steadfast. We need to be unmovable and always abounding in the work of the Lord. How often do we do the work of the Lord? Sunday? Maybe Sunday and Wednesday? Maybe once a month? Maybe once, once or twice a year, Easter and Christmas? No. Our triumph comes in being steadfast in what we've learned, being unmovable in what the scriptures have told us and we have heard and we have applied. And taking those things, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? 
Paul says, since we have an assurance of the resurrection and an eternal home in heaven, we are going to be resurrected. And our new bodies, as Christ was resurrected in his new body, and as he rose and sat down at the right hand of heaven, the first fruits of God, he's now waiting on the remainder of the fruit of the harvest. And the harvest is great. And there are needed many workers to go out into the harvest because there are few. There are not many people who are abounding in the work of the Lord. And even fewer being steadfast. And fewer being unmovable. Let's not be like that. Let's hear the words that Paul gave to the church at Corinth. Remember what you've learned. Remember what you've learned. Remember what you've heard. Remember what you've studied. Remember what you've proved. Remember what your faith is built on. If Jesus Christ was not raised from the dead, then you're watching and listening to me in vain. Your hope of something better after this life is in vain. Your hope of heaven is in vain. Let's not live in vanity, but let's live in God's truth, his joy, his light. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. Do you believe that? Then you must believe that he was resurrected in order to go and prepare for us a place and to wait for us. Let's all strive to that end. Let's remain steadfast, immovable, and always abounding in the work of our Lord. Thanks for listening today. Next week, we'll conclude uh, this uh, first letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. If God gives us the time, I hope you'll join us. We'll uh, have a short lesson and then a review, and that will conclude this uh, quarter, and we'll begin uh, our next session. God bless all of you, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.